Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. What's in a name? Why do parents spend so much time choosing the name for their child? Alice, noble humor. Conrad, honest advisor. Lisa, devoted to God. Henry, ruler of the home. We carry our name with us for a lifetime. It can define us. It can remind us of a proud history or be an embarrassing label. It's the first thing we say about ourselves when we meet someone new. As we stick out our hand, we say, hi, I'm... There are names that need no explanation. Elvis, Gandhi, Saddam, Aristotle, Napoleon, Adolf, Amadeus, Leonardo, Jesus. The most popular name for a boy this year is Liam. In 1914, it was John. When God introduced himself to Moses, he used a new name, one that hadn't been heard before. He said he was, I am. It gave a sense of the eternal, the timeless, I am who I always was and who I will always be. There's something comforting in that. It's never changing. I am. You can count on it. Greetings, everyone. It's Stampede Week, and our church was desperately looking for a cowboy preacher. I think this is the closest they could come up with. Actually, they forced me to wear this scarf and said, only then they'll let me preach here. (laughs) Today, we're starting a brand new sermon series for the summer titled, I Am. We are going to explore some of the greatest claims that have ever been made in history. The bold claims of Jesus Christ. I want to welcome all those watching us from one of our regionals or tuning into our live broadcast online. This being summer, I'm assuming that our online audience is going to grow. We're thankful for technology and the fact that we can use it for the kingdom. Among all historical figures, Jesus made some of the most daring claims about his identity. In Jesus, we have the richest and the clearest picture of God imaginable. This is not a God who is distant and remote and far, but this is a God who has reached down to us, who came seeking for us. He bends down at our level and extends us his hand of friendship. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' unique authority and identity as the Son of God is expressed in sayings which begin with the words, I am. There are seven such distinct I am statements. Jesus combined the word I am with simple and yet vivid metaphors that communicate significant spiritual truths. Each of these images reveal to us the character of Jesus and the purpose for his coming. As I read to you the seven I am sayings, focus on the images and metaphors that are being evoked in these statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. 
I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, truth, and life. I am the true wine. The I am statements not only tell us who Jesus is, but what he can do for us today. Because inherent in these claims are promises that we can appropriate to our daily lives. And my prayer for us as a church is together this summer as we explore this series, we will come face to face with the I am and go deeper in our understanding of who he claims himself to be. To begin our series in this opening message, I want to speak to us on the significance of the word I am. This will set the stage for the next eight weeks as we go deeper into the I am sayings. Today we're going to look at a passage of scripture where a broken, disillusioned, disappointed man battling with identity issues encounters the I am and the radical impact it had on his life. I'm going to ask all of us to stand up as we read from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Shall we pause for a word of prayer? Father, thank you for your inspired word. We declare today that your word is powerful, 
sharper than a double-edged sword, able to pierce through our inmost being. And we ask that you would do that today, that as we apply your word to our lives, there will be a sense of power that will be released, that your spirit would take the written word and take it deep into our hearts, imbibe it into our being, that, Lord, your word will transform us as we leave this place. We come at this time from the beginning to the end to the leading of your Holy Spirit. For we ask this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Our three-year-old son thinks that he's a cowboy. Those of you who know him know that his trademark style is a cowboy hat. For the most part, it stays on his head, except the time he's sleeping. I don't know how he got this inspiration to be a cowboy, because it's not in the jeans. <laughs> Guess that's obvious. The way it's going in 15 years' time, we may see him competing in the rodeo events at Stampede. Because it's Calgary Stampede, and because my son thinks he's a cowboy, I'm going to use this illustration, even though I have little clue of what I'm talking about. So bear with me. One needs to train a horse in order to be able to ride it. A crude word that we use to refer to that is breaking a horse. Horse breaking is a misnomer, since in reality, you're training your horse to accept you as a rider. When you hear the term breaking a horse, and if you're not familiar with it, it brings all kinds of wrong images. Horse breaking is not beating the horse into submission. That's horse abuse. Monty Roberts, who calls himself as the horse whisperer, helps us to understand that we do not break a horse by sheer domination and force. See, it's not about the trainer imposing his will upon the animal. Rather, it's about communicating with the horse at a whole new level, building a sense of trust so that the horse chooses to follow you because it feels safe. Now that has become so popular that we have all kinds of whisperers today. The dog whisperer saw a book titled The Cat Whisperer. Why cats do what they do and how to get them to do what you want. Wow. You know what will be the invention of the century? It will be a, a wife whisperer. <laughs> That'll make a lot of our lives easy, isn't it? Can you imagine a book like this, The Wife Whisperer, Why Wives Do What They Do and How to Get Them to Do What You Want? <laughs> a guaranteed bestseller. <laughs> An untamed stallion is majestic and powerful, but also stubborn and dangerous. As a result, it cannot be used for any constructive purposes. Horse breaking is the elegant art and skill of taming, training, and domesticating a wild or young horse. This allows us to harness the incredible power in a horse to accomplish useful tasks. The breaking process results in a greater good. It strengthens the connection between the cowboy and the horse. There's a bonding and trust as a result of that. The breaking process does not sap the energy of the horse. 
Rather, it does something powerful. The energy is now being directed or channeled to accomplish useful tasks. So it actually helps the horse to reach its full potential. I want to apply this analogy to our spiritual lives. Pastor Charles Stanley says, brokenness is God's requirement for maximum usefulness. How true. Brokenness is the Lord's method of dealing with our self-reliance. That desire within us to act independently from Him. God has to break us in order to help us reach our full potential. I want you to be careful and not misunderstand what I'm saying here. God certainly does not beat us into submission. Rather, He skillfully and elegantly works through our life circumstances to shape us and mold us and bring us to that point of surrender where we say from our own heart, I want to follow you because that's the safest thing to do. God takes our passion, our strong desires, our personality, and channels them to accomplish His purposes as opposed to ours. And brokenness almost always happens through a direct encounter with God. The life of Moses so vividly illustrates what I'm talking about. The first 40 years of Moses' life, you get to see the potential inside this man. Talent, skills, leadership, you name it, he had it. It's a story of rags to riches. Born in a family of slaves, he's now adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and makes a grand entry into the palace. He receives the best possible education and training in military warfare. He's a confident, self-sufficient leader, itching to make a mark, waiting to accomplish great things. He had a celebrity status and all the luxuries of Egypt at his feet. Scholars even say that he was poised to be the next pharaoh, to be the chief god of the Egyptians and receive the worship of a whole nation. But deep in his heart, Moses knew that God had a plan for his life, that he was the deliverer of his people, the savior, that he will set them free from the bondage and tyranny of slavery. After all, it's for a reason God had placed him in the palace. This self-confident Moses closely resembles a horse that is yet to be broken. Great strength that cannot be used for constructive purposes. Moses saw the mistreatment of his people and a deep anger whirled up inside his heart. He knew that he was the deliverer and had to do something about it. He took matters in his own hands, overstepped the boundary, and in a moment of unbridled rage, ended up killing an Egyptian in order to protect his people. And that was it. Pharaoh felt betrayed by someone who had grown up under him, and he wanted Moses to be dead. Have you ever had an accident in your kitchen floor where you dropped a glass jar or container, fell down with a great crash, and the glass pieces strewn all over the kitchen floor? That's 
an accurate picture of Moses' life. And there are some of you sitting here that may be an accurate picture of your life. Your hearts broken into pieces because of the circumstances of life, because of being let down by somebody so close, that you have come to that point where you've been completely shattered. I want you to know that there is hope, and we're going to get there towards the end of this message. Yes, Moses blew it. Everything came apart. Life was shattered into pieces because of one costly mistake. The privileged status, the celebrity worship, the position of authority, everything was lost in a moment. Before he knew Moses was a convict, a murderer, a man with a bounty on his head. For the next 40 years, Moses is in the desert in Midian, looking after sheep, not even his sheep, but the sheep of his father-in-law. The only worse thing than watching the sheep of your father-in-law would be to watch the sheep of your mother-in-law. <laughs> thankfully, God spared him from that suffering. <laughs> what a contrast between Moses' life as an Egyptian prince and a Midianite shepherd. As a prince, he had everything done for him. But as a shepherd, he had to do everything. As a prince, he was attended to by servants. And here he is, serving the sheep. He was holding that very job he was taught to despise. And he lived as an unknown foreigner in a strange land for 40 years. Moses is now 80 years old. And all he had was memories. And even they were fading. That spectacular dream that he once had of delivering his people had all but died. And through it all, God was patiently waiting behind the scenes for that self-sufficiency to be uprooted. Clearly, God had not forgotten Moses. He was preparing him, teaching him lessons in the desert that the palace could have never taught him. In our world today, we are so obsessed with productivity that we don't value preparation. We all want to do great things for God, but God has to do a great work within us before he can do a great work through us. And you cannot circumvent the training period. It's crucial. So after 40 long years, the training period had come to an end, and God appeared to Moses and rekindled that call. Moses, in his moment of deep brokenness, comes into a smack-dab encounter with God in a burning bush. And like the rider that calls the horse gently, asking for permission to ride, creating that arena of trust where the horse feels safe and submits, God calls Moses by name. Look at Exodus 3, verses 9 to 10. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, 
I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Can you picture this? These are words Moses thought he would never, ever hear again. The calling had not changed. God's plan for his life had not changed. And finally, God asked something so great of Moses. Deliver my people from the hand of Pharaoh. One would think Moses would jump on his feet and say, Hello, God. Long time no see. Where were you all these years? Give me the job description. I can't wait. Give me the plan so I can get going on my mission. No. No. This is not a youthful Moses waiting for his moment of reckoning. He's 80 years old, a senior citizen. When you spend 40 years with sheep, you lose your vocabulary, your style and elegance. 40 years of serving in an area that is way beneath your gifts and calling is enough to drain you of all self-confidence. This man whom Stephen describes in the book of Acts as mighty in word and deed had become a stutterer lost his ability to speak. Look at Moses' response to God's call. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Do you see what Moses is saying here? Who am I? I am a nobody, a shepherd. That is Pharaoh, the most powerful human being in the face of the earth. I will be no match in this great contest. God, find somebody else, better equipped, better qualified to do this job. In verse 12, God reassures Moses. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses is still not convinced, comes up with more excuses. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? In the Old Testament, every nation had a God, and every God had a name. So Moses, standing in front of the burning bush, asks a pertinent question. What is your name? Who am I representing? Today, names are just labels to distinguish ourselves from others. But in the Old Testament, significant meanings are often attached to a name. So names did not have just an identification function, but an explanatory function. What is the name God revealed to Moses. Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God introduces himself with four letters in Hebrew. The English equivalent would be Y-H-W-H. That is the root of the word, I am. 
The four consonants in Hebrew, which comprises the self-revealing name of God, are called the tetragrammaton, which simply means four letters. Because all four letters are consonants, vowels were later added to help us to be able to pronounce that name. So that's how we get the name Yahweh, from Y-H-W-H. And at the root of it is the word, I am. So I am and Y-H-W-H or Yahweh are synonymous. It's God's covenant name. The Jews did not dare to speak that name out of reverence and fear. I want to use a simple illustration to help us to understand this point. My kids call me daddy. My wife calls me a number of names. Most of them are good. Let's say she calls me honey. Some of you call me pastor. All of these serve as titles. But if someone asks me, what is your name? Then I'll respond by saying, Ashwin. That's my personal name. So Moses is questioning and asking, what is your name to God? And God's response is, this is my personal name. I am or Yahweh. God says, this is the name by which I would be called through all generations. God has many titles in the Bible, but strictly speaking, this is the only proper name for God. It is also the most frequent name occurring in the Old Testament, close to 6,828 times. How do you know that you're reading the word Yahweh or I am in your Bibles? God's name is almost always translated as Lord, L-O-R-D, in caps in our English Bibles. So when you see L-O-R-D in caps, behind that is the word Yahweh or I am. So that's how you know that you're reading actually the personal name of God. Remember, names have an explanatory function in the Old Testament. So when God revealed his name as I am to Moses, he was revealing something deep. In that one word, he's saying, I have no beginning or end. I am eternal. I don't depend on anybody for my existence. I am self-existent. I am constant and unchanging. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am always present with you. When my children cried out because they were in slavery, I heard their cry. I knew their suffering. Even in those moments of brokenness, when you feel that God has left you, He is still, I am that I am. So God is saying here, Moses, do you have any idea of who is commissioning you? This is not about you. It's about me. I am Yahweh. The task that you have been commissioned to may look great, but I am greater, Moses. And I am the Lord of lords, and I am sending you on this commission. Go in my strength and deliver my people. That's what is being communicated through that one word. And something dramatic happened as a result of that. 
the process of brokenness came to a completion in Moses. As he encountered God by name, he submitted to the rider. His energy and strength were being channeled in the right direction. And he goes on to accomplish the impossible, to deliver the people of God from the most powerful human hand, the hand of Pharaoh. Transformation happens as we encounter God's name. This is not a distant God. This is a relational God who, who's self-revealing, who comes down to us, who identifies with us. He tells us who he is. Through that name, I am, God says that he's near, he's close. I want you to fast forward 1,400 years. Jesus had launched his ministry. He was healing the sick, casting out evil spirits, loving the unlovable, doing good deeds and advancing the kingdom of God. His ministry is faced with strict oppositions from of all people, the religious leaders. We come to John chapter 8 where you see the oppositions from the scribes and Pharisees were so intense that there is a verbal debate between them and Jesus. The atmosphere is filled with tension. Everything that Jesus is saying is taken as offensive and being misunderstood. Let me read to you John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Fascinating passage of scripture. One of the most intense conversations you would see in the New Testament. The Jewish leaders are accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. It's stunning how they even came to that conclusion. Jesus, on his part, is not mincing words. He's not holding back the punches. He's being direct in his claims. 
When you talk to Muslims, you will hear them say that Jesus was a prophet, not the Son of God, not divine, just a human being like any of us who had the call of a prophet. When you talk to cults like Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, they are the ones who ring your doorbell on a Saturday morning when you're still in your PJs. You talk to JWs and they would say, Jesus is an angelic being, but not divine. New Agers think that Jesus is the enlightened one and we can be enlightened like him. The question is, who did Jesus claim himself to be? And I want to show you the most astonishing claim to divinity you will ever see in the four Gospels. Please give me your undivided attention. Jesus says to the crowd, if you keep my word, you will never see death. The Jews' response was, we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did our fathers. How can you say that anyone who keeps your word will never see death? Who in the world do you think of yourself? Are you greater than Abraham? See, Abraham the patriarch was the father of the faith, the model for all Jews in his faith and obedience. So they're drawing a comparison here between Abraham and Jesus. And Jesus says something stunning here. Look at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. See, years ago when Abraham received the promise that through his inheritance all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, in some way it's almost like looking into a dim reflection in a mirror. Abraham, as he received that promise and believed in that promise, saw Jesus. And the, he rejoiced at the prospect that God was going to bless the whole world through his seed. So that's what Jesus is saying here. In a prophetic way, Abraham looked forward to my time. That response ruffled the Jews. What do you mean Abraham looked forward to seeing you? You are not even 50 years old and you're speaking as though you and Abraham played marbles together? You see the clincher here, and I love this. John chapter 8, verse 58. Remember this verse. Very truly, I say to you, whenever Jesus uses that phrase, get ready because he's going to say something that will blow your mind. Very truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, that very word that cannot be pronounced, the tetragrammaton, the name of God that he revealed to Moses as his personal name. I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. In Greek, it's the word ego eimi with a distinct emphasis on the personal pronoun I. Before Abraham was born, Yahweh. If Jesus was just claiming his existence before Abraham, he would have said, before Abraham was born, I was. No, he is deliberately, intentionally using that very word, I am, 
And I tell you, this is the clearest, boldest claim for divinity Jesus made in the four Gospels. And if you think Jesus is just a prophet or an angelic being, you are wrong. He is claiming himself to be Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is not just a good moral teacher, an enlightened human being walking on the face of the earth. This is God walking on the face of the earth. Of all people, the Jews understood what Jesus was saying here. Look at verse 59. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. That's just a confirmation of what Jesus claimed. In the eyes of the Jews, it was blasphemy. He had said something no human being can ever dare to say. This is sin that deserved a death penalty by stoning. For the first time, the crowd understood what Jesus was saying. But they responded violently. Now, anybody can make these claims. People in psychiatry wards of hospitals make these claims. What is different about Jesus? The claims of Jesus are real because it's life-changing. And that's what our series is all about. Throughout this summer, we are going to see over and over again the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Earlier, I referred to you about people whose lives are in shambles. Feeling like a, a glass jar that has been dropped, shattered into pieces with glass pieces strewn all over the floor. Broken beyond repair. Who can put that life back together? Who can piece a heart that has been broken into a zillion pieces? It's impossible, isn't it? I tell you, it's impossible for every other religion or self-help philosophy. But Jesus Christ says it is possible. And he has done it over and over in the lives of countless people. And that's why we believe he is who he claims himself to be. In the midst of a burning bush, God called a broken, disillusioned Moses. He fixed him, revealed to him his own covenantal name, and sent him to accomplish a great task. Today, Jesus, the great I am, gives an open invitation to all of us to follow him, to give him the full control of our life. And when we do give him that full control, Jesus takes us by our hand and he says, I am Yahweh, the covenant-keeping faithful God. I will be present with you in such a real way. I will never give up on you. In the midst of your painful life circumstances, I will walk with you. I will fill the longings of your heart. For I am the bread of life. If you feed on me, you will never be hungry or thirsty. I am the light of the world. I will guide your path. I am the gate. Enter through me to green pastures. I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. 
I am the resurrection and life. Those who believe in me will live forever. I am the way, truth, and life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I am the true vine. As you abide in me, your life will bear fruit. It's only as you give the great I am the control over your life. He can channel your potential for a cause that is way greater than all of us. The question this morning is, have you been broken? Or are you bucking? Have you surrendered? Or are you resisting? As we come to a close, I'm going to ask all of us to stand up. Darcy is going to lead us in a closing song. I'm going to read a couple of verses for you that speak about the name of the Lord. Listen to this. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Psalm 9.10 says, Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, Yahweh, have never forsaken those who seek you. In that grand passage in Philippians 2, 9-11, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Look at this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's that name, Jesus. That name, I am, Yahweh, for whom every knee would bow. You know, one of the signs that you had an encounter with God, one of the signs that God is present in our midst, is we go down on our knees. You cannot stay standing. You cannot just stay seated in the presence of a thrice holy God. And I believe that same God is very present in our midst today. I believe that great I am is just walking over all over this place today. And our response has to be a fearing response of worship as we bow down and say, God, take over, take control. I want to be broken. I want you to be the Lord of my life. That's what we're going to do right now. As Darcy sings this closing song, I'm going to invite all of us who feel led by the Lord to come forward all the way to the altar to kneel here in the presence of the greatest name ever, the I Am. As I was kneeling, I was thinking about that grand scene before the name of Jesus Every knee would be bowed. All ethnic group, all people group, all the nations of the world bowing down to the name of Jesus. Have you bowed your knee to him? Today is an opportunity for you to do exactly that. You don't have to wait that long. You can do it right now when we say willingly from our heart, Jesus, this life belongs to you. We surrender to you, take over, reign over us.
And when you invite him into your heart, he comes immediately. And it's only then he commissions us to do something great and glorious for him. Shall we close our time with a word of prayer? Lord, you have revealed your name to us. Today, in our midst, through your word, we've heard it. We worship you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God who made the heavens and the earth. Thank you that you did not remain a distant God, but you came down to our level, that you incarnated into this world, that you died on the cross for us. You redeemed us with a price. Our lives rightfully belong to you. And we want to say, Jesus, from the bottom of our heart, we are yours and yours alone. Break our hearts, Jesus. That there will not be any resistance in this place to your lordship. That in one accord we will submit and surrender and proclaim that you are Lord in our midst. So let your spirit move freely even today. Bringing transformation. Bringing life change as we come face to face with who you are. Throughout this series we pray, Father, that you will continue to speak to us and reveal your identity. That it will change our identity of who we are. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. There are prayer partners available who will be happy to pray with you. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.